I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Today, we are diving ankles, knees, and head deep into the wellness industry. Is it helping us? Is it harming us? Is it just tickling our wallets? And how do we discern the difference? I don't know about you, but I can't keep up with the Kardashians or the latest wellness trends. So I brought on my two good friends, Jason and Colleen Wachab, to help point us in the right direction, or at least have a good time trying. Colleen Wachab is co-founder and co-CEO at MindBodyGreen, the leading independent media brand dedicated to well-being with 15 million monthly unique visitors. She lives in Miami, Florida with her husband, MindBodyGreen founder and co-CEO, Jason Wachab, and their two girls, Ellie and Grace. She graduated from Stanford University with degrees in international relations and Spanish. She spent 10 years working at Fortune 500 companies, including Gap, Walmart, and Amazon, before devoting her life's work to Mind Body Green. Colleen has been a speaker at Fortune 500 companies and numerous trade conferences on well-being trends. Her new passion that brings her joy? Pickleball. Jason Wakab is founder and co-CEO of Mind Body Green. He is the co-host of the popular Mind Body Green podcast and the best-selling author of Wealth, How I Learned to Build a Life, Not a Resume. He has been featured in New York Times, Entrepreneur, Forbes, Fast Company, Business Insider, and Vogue, and has a BA in history from Columbia University where he played varsity basketball for four years. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Gently Used Human Podcast. I'm so excited for my guests today, Jason and Colleen. Welcome. They are the co-founders of Mind Body Green, and I am so excited to be connecting with them today. Welcome, guys. Well, so great to be with you, our new favorite friend in sunny Miami. I am so excited to share a state with you. (laughs) Now, let's jump in. Mind Body Green, how long have both of you been doing conscious horticulture? And what type of strains do you primarily focus on in your garden? (laughs) So being that we have an indoor garden in our, you know, we do have some plants in our rental condo. We focus on plants that are very difficult to kill. And require very little hmm. watering. So those are the types of plants we focus on. In your mind-body green <laughs> situation? Yes. yes. Beautiful. What led you guys to create mind-body green? Because it's actually an amazing story. So I've always been passionate about plants. <laughs> I love the way they Wait, feel. Wait, do you no. like snake so. <laughs> plants? Or also known as mother-in-law's tongue? That's my favorite. We do like snake plants. We We don't have any here. We had a lot in Brooklyn. They were great, like indoor plants for Brooklyn, but for Miami. Things don't grow in Miami. Just a little bit of sun here. Yeah. Really? Orchids. Orchids are beautiful too. So, Mind Buddy Green. So, I think Mind Buddy Green has been around for over 14 years, but I think that the why has changed. There's been various stages of Mind Buddy Green and the mission and the why. And I think that the first why started with me and almost having back surgery. You know, I played basketball at Columbia. I worked at Wall Street shortly after. That's what people did in 1998. If you didn't have the grades or aptitude to go on to medical school or law school, if you had no grades, you went to Wall Street. That's what I did. Became a trader after 9-11. Like a lot of New Yorkers at the time, I was deeply affected by that event. 
events and just decided I wanted to do other things and then led me down the entrepreneurial path, which was twisty and windy and had lots of failures and you know, one maybe minor, minor success. And found myself part of a startup in 08 that wasn't doing well. And I was flying all over the place. I flew over 100,000 miles domestic in one year. What My was six foot seven body like, co- Oh, I had all the oh status. Yeah, and United. But like, again, in that process, there was a time when I'm like, yeah, like I'm going to get the status and the upgrades. And then like halfway through when I'm like at mile like 60,000, I'm like, why am I even competing in this race? I don't really want to win. Like this is, what am I doing? And so, you know, me in a coach seat, six foot seven body was just terrible and, and terrible for the person in front of me. And the stress of flying and the compression of the stress of the business and flying, the compression that happens during flying on uh, an old basketball injury combined for, you know, good old fashioned L4, L5, S1 and the sciatic nerve. My right leg was like a lightning rod. I couldn't walk. Went to a doctor and he suggested cortisone shots and then possibly surgery. And I tried the shots. I didn't do anything and then came back. He was like, you know, you need surgery. I have nothing against surgery, but specifically with back surgery, the success rates aren't really that good. So I sought a second opinion. That doctor said the same thing. And it was like an afterthought. He's like, you know, maybe some therapy or yoga could help. And Colleen and I were dating at the time and Colleen had a yoga practice. So I said, all right, you know, I'll try a little yoga, see what happens. So started with like five to 10 minutes of really light yoga in the morning and evening and started to feel better. And over the course of six months, I completely healed. And to this date, I've never had back surgery. And in that process, I kind of had this like awakening where it's like, wow, health and fitness back then was very like vanity focused about like the abs and, you know, looking great. And, you know, I was, I've always been somewhat fit. So like I look in the mirror, I'd be like, I'm okay. But like, clearly I was falling apart, you know, spiritually, emotionally, and, you know, now physically. And anything back then was like, the word wellness was equated with the spa. Anything holistic was just like new agey, crazy, just like preach the choir in, you know, Venice, Brooklyn, Boulder. We all, we all know the type, Scott. I am. And I just, I looked at this and I was like, wow, like, I think we're thinking about this all wrong. And, you know, it wasn't just yoga. I started to look at diet. I was a guy who consumed so much steak and so many martinis. My face is on the wall of the Palm Steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan next to Joe Namath That's and Adam you? Sandler. I recognize you now. That's where I've known you from. Okay. Okay. The, the first time we met, I was like, where do I know this asshole? And it's from the steakhouse in New York. Okay. Of Tell course. Me. Yeah. 50th between Broadway yeah. and 8th. There I am. You can see what I look like at age 27. <laughs> or whatever it was. But at any rate, like change my diet. I still eat meat, but, you know, opt for, you know, grass-fed or get better options. I'll leave it at that. And just like really went through this process where it's like everyone's thinking about about this all wrong, that true well-being is this bunch of mental, yeah. physical, spiritual, emotional, mm-hmm. and environmental well-being. They're all connected. One word, mind, buddy, green. And that was sort of like the big aha moment where it was like, you know, I think there's something here. And we officially launched, quote unquote, in 2009. Mm-hmm. Did you launch it together at the same time? That was like a cohabitation. Co- this was a very stressful part in our. So well, it I'm a started, couples therapist. So let's talk about it. Like yeah. how? Let's, let's get into it. Yeah. So where, in, where were you in? 2010? I know we needed you in 2010. In 2009, yeah. I was working nights and weekends with Mind Body Green, and I had the very traditional corporate path. Jason always jokes, I missed exit on my tour of duty because I worked for Gap Inc. When we moved to New York, I worked for Walmart and then I worked for Amazon. So I was very employable and having a paycheck, having health insurance were kind of vital, but this was all literally happening 
as we were getting married. So yes, we did see couples therapy and it was a huge part in terms of aligning on and bridging kind of our different thoughts on financial wellness, not just for our marriage of what does it mean when I say we'll make money in three months or six months, and then it extends to literally four years, three years, three years, sorry, three years. But also, you know, those lessons have managed and shaped how we run the company together so that we always are on the same page in terms of financial risk and investment. But, you know, the inflection point for me for when I joined full-time was really when I had this breakdown moment, which is always a type that leads to, you know, substantial change. I had a a near catastrophic pulmonary embolism and I had been leaving my Saturday yoga morning ritual class. It was a strong power class because that was the type of, you know, exercise I did back in the day. I was walking around the West Village and I was like, Jason, like it's kind of hard to breathe. Like something's weird. Can you come meet me? We walked around and I was like, I think I just need to get home. So we took the A train home and this particular station had very steep steps And as we were walking up, I collapsed on the steps, got it out of the subway station, and we proceeded to call my general practitioner. But I then gaslit myself, my symptoms, and everything that had happened, partially because it was a beautiful New York day and whoever wants to go to the ER, but really not realizing and processing the severity of what had just happened and chalked it up to dehydration. I spent the rest of the weekend napping, being lethargic, completely out of character. On Monday morning, Jason's like, the only way you get to go to work, because I was very disciplined about my work, was if you stop at your doctor on the way. So took the train to Soho, saw my GP. Within a couple of minutes, he's like, you're having a pulmonary embolism. And I was so bewildered. I didn't understand the concept. He writes me a note that says, I am having a pulmonary embolism. It was unclear if it was because he was concerned I wouldn't make it in the cab to the ER or if once I got there, I wouldn't be able to articulate and he didn't want to waste any time once I got to the ER. But I had showers of clots in my lungs, showers of clots. And, you know, that was the the huge inflection point. And I, I always wish people can better listen to those whispers so that you don't have to have this cosmic kick in the butt. But when this happens to a healthy looking 32 year old, you know, you go through the battery of Western tests. And interestingly, I don't have high predispositions to clotting. I was on the birth control pill, which likely factored in and had heard about the risks, but I think was like, oh, I'm not a smoker. I'm not overweight. That could never happen to me. And when I wrote about this story from Mind Body Green, it ended up going viral. And I heard from hundreds of women who had cousins, sisters, friends, mothers who had had this same experience, oftentimes being tragic. So, you know, I, I am more thoughtful about what I'm putting into my body and aware of it. And it started this six month healing process because a pulmonary embolism recovery path is a true invisible illness. I looked healthy on the outside, but I could not breathe. And it was the first time that I thought about my breath, you know, the thing we do 17 to 30,000 times a day, and really went on this discovery path, exploring Western, exploring Eastern. It was a game of Marco Polo in terms of what made me feel better, what made me feel closer to myself to try to discover you know, what was the path I needed to go on? And for me, the joy of well-being is very much the roadmap that I wished I had over a, a decade ago to really start thinking about, you know, what would make me connect to myself and help me live a better well-lived life. Yeah. 
It's amazing how catastrophe so often leads to revelation. And, you know, I've shared with both you or it's in my book as well, like shit went bad. And like, I couldn't change. I couldn't shift gears until I hit a rock bottom. And, and I, and I hear that from both of your experience of like, you know, rock bottoms might look different for all of us, but it's like, it takes such an intense experience so often as opposed to, well, I think, I mean, I guess I would turn it back to you. Why do you think it takes so many rock bottoms to make change in the world, to make change our, our body, our mind, our spiritual attunement? I wish that wasn't the case. And when I look back on, you know, my experience, you know, while I don't have regrets, I wish I could have listened to the whispers in my body that something was off before it had to become such a slap to lead to that breakthrough moment. Because there was definitely whispers from my body. But I think the hardest part of all of this process is when you actually have to tune into yourself. And that's the work that only you can do. We have, you know, this wonderful orchestra of healers and Western practitioners and so many different resources. But at the end of the day, you still know your body best. And I I think to answer your question, I think about it two ways. One is, you know, I think people know if they're not eating well, people know if they're not exercising enough. And if they're not doing that, I, I also think like there's a downstream effect where you're not necessarily in tune to those whispers. That's one of the reasons, you know, I love yoga, I love meditation, mindfulness, but you just become a little bit more in tune. Like you joke, like you don't see many people go to a yoga class and then hit McDonald's after or go first. Like it just doesn't generally happen. You become more in tune, what feels good, listen to your body. And so I think that when we have a problem with people not eating well and being sedentary, and then two, I, to Colleen's point, I do think it's, you know, like it's pretty straightforward with nutrition and exercise mm-hmm. and mindfulness practice. Whereas when you're talking about an emotional health, sometimes those, you're bringing up questions you may not want to answer. And it's, it's harder and it's subjective and, you ha- and there's like a lot of work involved. It's a lot easier to some degree. It's a lot easier to say like, oh, we're going to change your diet and you're going to eat broccoli every day. Here's your program. <laughs> Versus like, you know let's go to this place that you don't necessarily want to go to and talk about this relationship and the trauma and so forth. And, and, and I get it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it makes me really think about the process of what we override as a survival mechanism becomes the way it's so hard to hear those whispers. Like it, it makes us yeah. unattuned to being able to listen to the somatic symptoms, to the symptoms of our body, even we might hear it as anxiety, but actually anxiety is often like a, a signal, an alarm that's much louder to what's underneath it. Because anxiety is what's produced when we've ignored so many other things. Yes. That's such a great point. Yes. So I am super excited about y'all's book. I read it in a day. and Wow. <laughs> so it's called The Joy of Well-Being, A Practical Guide to a Happy, Healthy, and Long Life. And I'm, I lied. I'm actually a really slow reader, so I've only read the cover. <laughs> but why, why joy? Like that, that word really stood out to me because like, why joy? Because like, doesn't well-being also come with like cold, shitty, miserable ice baths and raw, crusty kale? You know, this was a big inspiration for us, this point in that, you know, there's a couple of sides to this. One is, you know, if we take a step back, the conversation around longevity has just advanced by leaps and bounds. Like it it is amazing going back to 2009 
And, you know, we think of like longevity was like 1.0 where it's like, all right, I'm going to live to a hundred. Then there's the 2.0, which is health span. You know, you don't want to live to a hundred, but for the last 30 years of your life, you have terrible quality of life because you're not mobile, you're not healthy, you're bedridden. So health spans this idea, if you want to be, be healthy and mobile and doing the things you want to do, you know, for 99 years, 11 months, 30 days, you know, maybe you die rapidly or pass away from a heart attack overnight. That's the idea of like health span. When we like the 3.0 joy span, joy span, you know, this idea of what's, yeah, like what's the point of being healthy and fit and living to a hundred if you're not having fun, mm-hmm. if you don't have good relationships, yeah. if, you know, you're just, you're just miserable. And like, we feel like we've come so far here, but you know, the conversation in terms of like, there's like the, the more masculine and feminine versions of this, the masculine side, it's, you know, about, and I wear some of the wearables. I, I, I like them, but it can go a little too far with like measuring VO2 max and, and lactate and like all these sorts of, you know, protocols and modalities. And you, you look at all these things, and you're like, oh my God, like I, I don't have the time to do all of this. And, and like we're in this business, the time or the resources, and it doesn't seem like fun. Yeah. You know, cold plunge, for example, is something that has a lot of great science behind it in terms of hormesis and the longevity benefits. Colleen and I hate the cold and we're like, we're not going to do this. Like, don't. And there are lots, there's so many things you can do. Be one story if you know what you needed cold, like cold plunge was like, if you wanted to live past, you know, 60, you had to do cold plunge. Like, okay, we got to do this thing. But like, there are lots of things you can do. If you don't like this thing, don't do it. And it's this idea of there's there's a feeling that you need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And as a whole, we do believe people need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because life is full of uncomfortable situations. But when it comes to health and wellness routines, I think people set themselves up for failing. You know, National Quitters Day at the gym is January 13th because they put themselves in such uncomfortable... Yeah. (laughs) I celebrate it every year. Or like there's there's no joy. Like who wants to do this? And so that's like the male point of view. And on the feminine side, I think there's like, you know, this insane pressure that wellness is, you know, looking like the Epsom salt baths and the candles and the the gadgets. And it's just a little bit, it seems unattainable. I think it puts people in a position that's, you know, someone, if you're an average person who has a family or works very hard, you look at this and you say, I, I can't even begin to think about how this incorporates into our life. So like, What's great about the science is we've come so far and so much of the science points to practices, modalities that take very little time and are free and inexpensive. And the two biggest objections to our world is I don't have the time and I don't have the money. And you can have fun too. I don't have to be miserable. Oh my gosh, really? That is revolutionary. I mean, I think, you know, it's such a cultural thing to be like, to amplify everything. And it's like, you know, I I do feel like our wellness culture is mirroring this sort of urgency culture. It's like, we got to get everything in. You got to be healthy now. You got to do all these things. And there's a lot of pressure. And that pressure has an effect on our physiology too. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to stop eating raw crusty kale starting tomorrow. Unless it brings you. Like, (laughs) I remember going to, uh, you've been in New York for a while. We went to Swen. Remember Swen? Swen, yeah, yeah, the macrobiotic restaurant. I was just like, I can't do this. This does not bring me joy. This does not bring me joy. The machi waffles that tasted like cardboard did not bring you joy? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I can't (laughs) do this. That's sacrilege. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, because you went. We were talking before. Like we, I think we went to the same yoga studio for at some point together in New York, and then we flirted with every yoga Did you say studio. You flirted with every yoga studio. We go everywhere. We go everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> And there'd be a teacher in town, like, you know, it's like Sean Corn would come to town in Yoga Journal, like, yeah. do that. Like, yeah. whoever was in town, we would go to their workshop. Like, you know, we spent a lot of time at Strala with Tara mm. Styles, but then, like, Jiva Mukti, we'd go to Vera with oh, yeah. Elena, we would go to Kula, yeah. like, everywhere. Yeah. And then you have to top it off with Sue N, which is, you know, in the cardboard waffles. <laughs> I don't think they're there anymore. I, I actually like the I, so I used to bring my family there just to watch them suffer a little bit. <laughs> and and it has inspiration for the book. You know. <laughs> it's it's true. But yeah, I really appreciate you sort of humanizing wellness in that way because otherwise it's just the pressure is too much. And and you're right, we end up buckling under that pressure of trying to be well. Yeah. Our friend JJ Virgin has this great line that you have to bake the cake before you can put mm. on the frosting. And you know, as we outline in the book, the fundamentals can be integrated mm. into your life. All this other stuff, you know, can be a little bit of noise. And if yeah. you know, there, there's stuff we in, engage with too that you know brings us joy on that. But you have to start with the fundamentals and, before you can start tinkering. And I think so much of the conversation is around the quote unquote 20%, the things that aren't foundational. And like we felt confident with the book. It's like, we can get you to 80%. And that's like a pretty darn good baseline. And we think you can have a lot of fun along the way and integrate this into your life in a way that's like totally reasonable and actionable. And like all the other stuff, the stuff that we tend to talk about all the time mm -hmm. online, that's more like the 20%, the frosting, just focus on the cake. You just can't do the frosting and get all the things mm -hmm. and, and take all the injectable, all the stuff, like just focus on the 80% and you're going to be happier and we're going to get you to a more sustainable I place. appreciate that. It's like good enough. Good enough well-being. And totally. which is like good enough parenting. Like let's de-shame the whole parenting cycle. Good enough, you know, podcasting. <laughs> I'm like, we've got a crocodile in back it's of us. Good so, enough, you know. Artwork? Question mark, question mark. <laughs> it, we love the artwork. It is not as expensive artwork, but as as new people to Miami, we saw this artwork and brought us a lot of joy. Brought us a lot of joy. And you know, have to admit with our kids, we, we really liked Lyle Lyle. Crocodile as a children's uh -huh. film, and it's just a film for the whole family. Scott. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. You know, for those who can't, who are just listening, the the painting looks to be a crocodile reaching. Thank you for moving, so I could more articulate what it is. A crocodile reaching up to the oranges in the sky, uh, not the sun, the actual navel oranges that are growing here in Florida, and uh, it looks happy. That crocodile. Because truly, it, it just yeah. ate a dog from someone's yard and is now getting dessert. Or as we like to say, icing on the cake, Likely. as JJ likes to say. And by the way, exactly. I usually just eat the icing. So JJ and I need to have a conversation here. Totally. We can facilitate that. <laughs> I'm sure it'll go great. So I recently Googled, is Mind Body Green a cult? And I fetched an article that was called Don't Fall Prey to the Cult of Wellness. And I would Ooh. love to dive into the cult of wellness with you both. Yeah, we have a, a very complicated 
relationship with the word wellness. I really struggle with it. And I look at the cacophony of voices on social media. I look at, you know, the bro culture of cold baths and hyper discipline that we were talking about. And then on the flip side, I look at what we call in the book, Kardashian wellness for, you know, for all the frosting and less of the fundamentals. And I really struggle with the word wellness, which is why we call this book, The Joy of Well-Being. I want us to focus more of the concentration on the fundamentals, but also in a way that takes the conversation away from this narcissistic wellness conversation, which in some ways can be another proxy for vanity in some circles, not in all of them, but it's the more politically correct way of talking about certain parts of your body or nutrition or movement. And I struggle with that part of it, but yet also see how wonderful these foundational principles are. So I've moved to well-being, which also elevates the conversation. Yes, you know, you do have to take care of yourself. And I, as a woman and a mom, always have to remind myself about, you know, the great analogy on the airplane of you do have to put on your mask before you can help Mm -hmm. others. And then once you are in a good well-being equilibrium, then you can think about your family and your community and your planet, but it is so much bigger than just oneself. And which is why well-being really dives into this idea of something bigger and a word that resonates with me so much more personally than the cult of wellness. And I, I, I do understand the how things can be culty in a sense that, that there are so many people who come to our world from you know, whether it's medical gaslighting or, you know, there's, there's something going on autoimmune. They go to a doctor, they say you're crazy or or back pain or something. And they're searching and they're in pain and then they find something. Maybe it's a doctor who prescribes a certain diet that's restrictive. And all of a sudden, all the symptoms go away and they, and they feel great. And that becomes a big part of their identity and becomes ideology. And when someone challenges and we see it all the time. And I also don't think this is unique to wellness. I think culturally, this is what happens. And, you know, politics, we can go on and on on this. But like when someone challenges that, it challenges their identity and, you know, they'll do anything to defend who they are and their, their leader, so to speak. And the way to, you know, if you're a leader and you're looking to build followers, so to speak, unfortunately, the best way to do that is to have an extraordinarily strong point of view that is probably extreme that just you need to not deviate from that and it always helps to have a common en- enemy and incite anger a statistic i shared on our show with you and i'll just repeat it here because it's just mind-blowing and just you know is is the the wharton study in the new york times most emailed list which is essentially the most widely read articles in the world and so they did a study they they wanted to see like they see if they could classify the articles by emotion and they did the top three emotions were anxiety, awe, and anger. Number one was anger by 34%. If someone read an article and it caused them to be angry, that article is 34% more likely to go viral. If you think about that, it's insane. Anger drives eyeballs, 
you know, reads, watches, listens, clicks, revenue. So unfortunately, if you want to build a, a platform or spread the word, even if that's a good word, it kind of pays to to incite anger. And that can get culty very quickly. Yeah, and it used to be in a world in which maybe the comment section was only if you're reading, you know, a digital publication. Now we literally live in a comment section. On social media, everyone's getting in. The barrier to entry is really low. And energetically, you have to be mindful about the consumption that is happening in that world. We're all addicted to drama. Someone should write a book about it. you know. know. Someone should. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're so right. I mean, anger is such a powerful force. So it's fear. So is, and we can couple that with anxiety. It drives the economy. It drives the way that capitalism is formed in terms of attention gathering and in maintaining that attention to sell. I mean, and yeah, you're right. Anger is so powerful. It's, it's probably why I wake up every morning and I ask myself, how can I piss people off today? Because I want to succeed. And, and I mean, jokes aside, like it's true. No, that's not true. I don't wake up and ask that question until after breakfast. But no, it is true. Like, how do you continue to operate? You know, we both are entrepreneurs. How do you operate in a yeah. world where that is the stakes? Like, you have to use the tools to essentially succeed. Right. It's tricky. Who? And yeah. There's a a value yeah. system. That is part of everything we do while also acknowledging the world in which we live. And, you know, Mind Body Green is an ecosystem. People consume our content. And there is a need to be, quote unquote, punchy to get people's attention. But how do we do it in a way that aligns with our values? And that's kind of the thought process, you know, that we put our content through, you know, channel agnostic, wherever it's it's going to show up. It doesn't mean we're not aware of, you know, the bigger macro trends of there's an attention competition. You can't just show up on TikTok with a 1500 thoughtfully done article. You have, you have to show up in the right way, but you have to be true to your values. And if you want to be an endearing brand, you can't fall, you know, to these trends that go, that go like this and and change so, so dramatically, but staying true to your values while being aware of the platform is, is key. And and, and it, I think it mirrors what we're talking about here between well-being and and what you're discerning as wellness too. And I, and I really, I want to go back to that for a moment and what you were saying. It's like wellness has these very myopic views. It's, it's intending to be unflexible as a means to gather and gather a following to gather an energy around it. And well-being has more this humanistic spacious perspective that nuance is important that you are an individual and that each person will have their own cocktail of processes and healing and nutrition and so forth to achieve this sense of well-being. Absolutely. And this goes, you know, when people say like, well, why do you write the yeah. book? Because we were a media company. And, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head of the yeah. why is the internet doesn't do nuance and balance yeah. well. And we have a, you know, we're very rigid about being flexible. And, you know, that just... Do you mean mobile? Like when we went to Jivamukti together in yoga class? That type of flexible? <laughs> we're literally flexible. I can literally flexible. touch my toes. You're welcome. I can't anymore. Well, I can, but I have to bend my knees a little bit. Partly because I'm just scared of hurting Aww. my knees. But, but, I, but I think 
we do live in a world where if you want attention, you have to be really loud and extreme and outrageous. Yeah. You know, who wants to just be scrolling and have it read something incredibly balanced and thoughtful? I, I kind of do, but I also don't. Totally. <laughs> but I don't. I hear you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, wh- one of the examples we bring up in yeah. the book is the Mediterranean diet. What's that? Not really controversial. Medi- a lot of people would say, hey, Mediterranean diet, let's have olive oil, let's have lots of fruits and vegetables, maybe a little bit of meat and fresh fish. Not a lot of controversy Sorry, around that's it. that's so boring. I actually don't, don't know what that is. Of- there you go. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. But you've probably heard of some other ones. Um, <laughs> probably, I'm sure you've heard of carnivore and vegan <laughs> and paleo, but not so much about the Mediterranean right. diet. It's not really sexy. It, yeah, I, I can. As you say that, it's it's not sexy. <laughs> nope. You can kind of eat everything. Yeah. And you have to make some choices with, like, you know, Wait, how much. Where do you my enjoy. patterns of shame and self suffering come in if it's so flexible? That that's no fun. <laughs> exactly. T- typically enjoyed with friends, uh-huh, and family. Uh-huh. I mean, it gets even worse and worse. I know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, how do we switch from this very intense, closed container of wellness to this more flexible, open, nuanced, trauma-informed, to be honest, let's be real about that, wellness? Arthur Brooks has this great mantra about writing your personal mission Mm. statement. And I think it's really important to do that and take stock of where you are and where you want to go. And, you know, we shared a little bit about our personal stories at the beginning, you know, 10 years ago, I was in healing mode, you know, now I'm a mom of two. And what I'm thinking about is what I want to look like and feel like in my seventies, in my eighties. So I can be down there on the ground in line at Disney world with my grandkids and, and just having a really joyful life in my later years. So the why and the purpose evolves by decade, evolves by the years. But I think it's about understanding your value system of, of where you want to go. And then once you have an understanding of these foundational principles, you know, really taking stock of what's the most important thing in your life to change. Because there's eight pillars in this book. And if you're new to all of it, you're like, wow, that sounds like a lot. But how do you focus on what's going to have the most impact on your own health and happiness and start there because it's the easiest place to start and really connecting. And this is something I've had to work on, you know, over the years and kind of reset and recalibrate is really understanding like what brings you joy? You know, I have a really good sense of what my three-year-old gives her a lot of joy, but how do we connect and make sure that that's still a through line of how we live our life? It should be a constant and shouldn't be just a, a childhood part of it. And then once you understand these principles, understand where you're at and where you want to go, then it's about developing your own roadmap to live your well-lived life. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to The Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and The Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, 
The Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. So I'd like to play a game with both of you now that I like to call yay or nay. And it's based on your core eight principles from your book. So I'm going to name each core principle and share something from my own personal life that I want you to yay or nay if I'm on the road to joyful well-being. And maybe (laughs) after after I finish and you yay or nay me, you can share your favorite factoids from each of those core pillars. Does that sound good? Sure. Sounds great. So let's start with the first core pillar, which is I will use my breath wisely. So sometimes when I'm I'm craving attention, I'll go into my partner's bedroom while he's sleeping and I'll lean into his ear and I'll just do this. <sighs> I think they call that Ujaya breath. <laughs> so yay or nay? <laughs> that, that's like how our six-year-old breathes. We're working on that. <laughs> we have a dental consultation mm, right after mm. this. Play day. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give that a strong okay, nay. Okay, well, here's another one. Sometimes I like to take a helium bloom into the shower, suck it dry, and just sing my heart out like near, far, Wherever you are, I believe that the heart will go on. Once First more, <laughs> you open the door and you're here in my heart and my heart will go on and on yay or nay oh my we love broadway scott this is a strong yay strong Strong yay. yay okay awesome can you give us some more factoids about how i will use my breath wisely well, have you ever tried that in a yoga class in the middle of class? I think that would be a very nuanced point of view on the... The, the singing? Oh, no, that is yes. how I used to teach yoga back in the day. It was called Yonsei Yoga. It. We would just sing Beyonce and do downward dogs, upper dogs, and a few sun salutations in between. So with breathing, you know, one of the reasons why we started with this one, you come back to the major objections, time and money. Well, you're breathing all day, every day. You don't have a choice and it doesn't cost anything. And in terms of frequency, we're breathing 17 to 30,000 times a day, yet the majority of the population is doing it wrong in that we're, we're mouth breathers. And 90% of children have acquired like some degree of like deformed breathing and mouths and noses and 45% of adults snore occasionally quarter of the population snores constantly that that segues to sleep and that discussion but like 
more than half the population has dysfunctional breathing patterns. And so there's also like, there's a downstream effect. So it's not just like I should breathe through my nose because it's better for me. You know, one, it filters out all the bad stuff, all the bacteria, the viruses, you know, mouth breathing, it comes right in because your lungs, nose actually filters that stuff out. So there's like a line, there's an immune function there. Then it increases CO2 tolerance, increases your oxygen absorption and physiological resilience, become stronger. Nitric oxide, fantastic for your cardiovascular system. And then lastly, very relevant to this discussion, your book and just generally is you're more likely to be in fight or flight response mode when you're breathing through your mouth rather than your nose. And that, you know, when you're breathing through your mouth, it could lead to chronic stress and just, you know, we think about anxiety disorders, mental health epidemic, you know, being able to nasal breathe is extraordinary. And if you can take it even like a little bit further when you incorporate nasal breathing with other, you know, techniques, you know, if you, if you think about it, we've got a problem with how we all interact with each other around topics that require, you know, possible empathy, curiosity, and there's lots of divide around. And, and you, you've got stimulus and response. Like, and, and as humans, like we have that ability, like animals don't. So like there's stimulus and then there's the time in between the response. And when you breathe through your nose, when you start focusing on your breathing, look, it is still a work in progress for us and many people. You're better equipped to put more distance between stimulus, which in certain certain circumstances, something really angers you and response. And I think it is safe to assume that the more time between those two, you're more likely to respond in a thoughtful, less reactive way, which is often beneficial for all parties. Yeah. Should we go to the next pillar? You're super excited. Super excited. So I'm not going to quiz you on what the next pillar is because that would just be rude. But the next pillar is I will aim for deeper, more restful sleep. So I personally like to sleep for the first 20 minutes of every hour. I'm like a super power napper. And the total is like about eight hours a day still, I think. Hold on. Math is really hard for me, mostly because I'm so tired all the time. So yay or nay? I'm going to do that nay. nay. Okay. So I should not. Yeah. I'll go. Naps are okay. Just I, I would hour. say without the comment of I'm tired all the time, I would maybe say it's working for you. If you said I'm not tired, I feel okay, I would say maybe that's working. So that's a more well-being approach to say like, instead of like, you have to have eight hours of sleep. And if you don't, you are a horrible human being, which is what my parents (laughs) used to tell me growing up. (laughs) Can you say more about your favorite factoids around sleep? Well, I I think that the the hard line there is you never want to get less than five. That's kind of when you start getting less than five hours of sleep, things can get really bad in terms of your well-being. And, you know, if you, okay, if I don't breathe for a couple of minutes or 10 minutes, like you're not going to be around. With sleep too, you know, if you don't sleep for a week, like you're probably on that same path. And so sleep is absolutely critical. And, you know, I think as a society, there is pressure to sleep and sleep anxiety is it's is real. Is real. And sleep anxiety can often be a lot worse than the sleep itself. And that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sleep is deeply personal to me. I ended up in an ER when I was in my early 20s because for three nights in a row, I couldn't sleep out of anxiety before a presentation, which had become something bigger in my mind. And there's a lot there that I can unpack with you later about my childhood and and how this came to me. 
He's not charging us right now, so maybe we should. That is, that is how I make all my friendships. <laughs> As we unpack our childhood stuff. Yeah, clearly this thing had become yeah. something a lot bigger in my mind. And, and that was, they gave me a Xanax. This was, you know, 2002. Yeah. And, you know, the conversation kind of started and ended there from a medical profession. And now it's just become, I am a lifelong student of sleep. And it's not something that will ever probably just come super naturally to me, but I'm super thoughtful about my caffeine curfew. Jason can, you know, pound espressos at like 3 p.m. and go to sleep. I'm cutting it off like before they recommend you do at 1030, just because knowing my body, I'm really caffeine sensitive. And we try to do the things because we also enjoy them, like getting sunshine when you wake up. But we also have learned, again, bringing back the joy. We watch television in bed, which every sleep expert will tell you, no, your bed is a sanctuary. You know, it's only for for sleeping, but it brings us a lot of joy. And so at the end of the day- We're mindful of what we consume. We are mindful of what we consume. What are you consuming? Um, Are you guys, are you, I assume you're watching Dexter again. Totally. Could never watch Narcos. Yeah. Narcos people watch Dexter, no. No. Uh, we love Ted Lasso. Okay. We love a lot of the Netflix sports documentaries. Succession. Oh, so okay. good. Although it, Succession does that. So I, I track everything, and that that show has an impact on me the next day. Oh, because you're tracking so on your ring. So and I, I, yeah, I wear an aura ring and a whoop. A whoop. That's interesting to see. Whoop. What's a whoop? So a whoop is fantastic. And again, I have baked the cake. So sometimes there's frosting. I, You're in I like frosting. And, and the frosting. I eat frosting We're going for into frosting, Terry. Let's be real. I do like the aura and the whoop for different reasons. One is the, the aura for tracking sleep. And the whoop is great for tracking workouts and exertion and like real-time okay. heart rate. And, and also like real world stuff. So both are great to know if like an illness is coming on, like your body temperature will start to spike. And then like how calm you are, like I look at my heart rate. And so, for example, there was one time I had like an infection. I had to go to, to urgent care and they take my blood pressure and it was high. And I'm like, oh, my blood pressure is not high. And I look at my heart rate. I'm like, oh, okay, give me a minute. Like, let me just do my nasal breathing and then boom, see my heart rate drop blood pressure is normal. Like it, I forget what they call it. It's like the white coat yeah. syndrome with blood pressure. Like it's so wildly inaccurate, but like it's a great real time tool for tracking heart rate and how hard I'm exerting myself. So I'll pause there. Succession affects me, but the writing is so, so good. So good. <laughs> going back for a second, not to succession because I've never seen it. And, but feel oh, free so to ruin good. it for me. I actually love, I love <laughs> when someone does that, but here's an interesting question. Do you feel like all the, you know, the watches, the rings that are telling you what your body is doing, how it's feeling, starts to distract you from doing that yourself? Like, does it take you away from that innate intelligence and wisdom that we're trying to cultivate? Not only can it do that, but worse so, it can actually add to the sleep anxiety. Mm. So there's a study that found that clock monitoring, so rolling over, saying to yourself, why am I still awake at 1238? you know, those with insomnia and will know what I'm talking about it actually increases the pre-worry exacerbating sleep issues. So we have a very different relationship with sleep wearables and data and data in general. I found really great treasure trove of insights and that upcoming, you know, those first two weeks, I learned that there was an impact on alcohol on my ability to sleep soundly. Mm. Somehow I needed a tracker. 
tell me that, even though I'm sure there's a couple hundred Mind Body Green articles on the topic. So you get that data. So now we drink earlier in the day. <laughs> I do, I do. And you know, time is a you know, time. I, I will, that, that is, I don't drink a lot, but I would much rather have a margarita with lunch or brunch than have it at, we still eat dinner early, like six o'clock or seven o'clock because it will impact my sleep less. So I am much more mindful around data and how I use it because I know that I'm a little hardwired to take that and have it increase my anxiety or just feelings of worry. Whereas for Jason, it's fascinating. I had to stop wearing my my ring because I got divorced. And I also stopped wearing my ring that told me how well my sleep was because I felt shamed in the morning. I was like, I feel just fine. Thank you. Two hours is enough for me. And, and it was like, you're going to die. And we decided to part ways. Both, both situations. Yeah. yeah. Usually when I have a bad night's sleep, I don't need a score to tell. Yeah. yeah and I, I think for wearables and data and testing and so much of what's available mm-hmm. now, like, look, information is an empowerment, but only oh. if it, you, it actually empowers you. Cause I think yeah. for some people, mm-hmm. and I think generally, you know, like it's, it's difficult to handle mm-hmm. or interpret and it can lead to more stress and anxiety. And that's mm-hmm. a lot worse than wearing anything. Yeah. So, yeah. I love that we we're like basically neighbors and we both have a big storm around us. I can hear yours. I can hear <laughs> your thunder. Nice. It's just slightly off from my thunder. Yeah. Anyways. All right. Shall we move to the next pillar? Sure. Let's do it. So I will eat real food. Now, I don't know about you, but I still crave from when I was a kid food from an easy bake oven. Yay or nay? <laughs> Well, I have no problem with the oven, but like what's in the, what goes in the easy bake oven? I think it's Play-Doh. I don't actually, <laughs> I don't I actually remember, but I crave it. I'm like, Play-Doh may have some gluten. Otherwise it's, you know, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I, have, I have celiac, so <laughs> probably, that's probably why I'm craving it. That explains it. All right. How about this one? It's shake and bake and I helped. Yay or nay? <laughs> I think it all depends on context. Yeah. If this is, you know, like a, a family ritual that you and your family enjoy mm-hmm. and it's, you know, a, yes. a treat, then absolutely have that shake and bake and enjoy uh, it. But if it's you at 10 p.m., you know, you already had dinner and you're feeling a little sad and you go to the shake and bake drive in and then you start eating in the car with like your hoodie over yourself. Were you guys watching me last night? Back off. Back off. We're not that close yet. Damn, friends. Wow. Okay. I just got read on my podcast. <clears throat> Awkward. Luckily, it's mostly audio. <laughs> All right. Does a Zempic count? Ooh, you know, that one, I think, with that drug specifically, yeah. and I'm still learning a lot about it. I think it can work for people who are struggling at a level that is like potentially catastrophic with diabetes and obesity. And those people need help and sometimes need interventions that can help get them on their way. But what I've also seen culturally is a lot of people turning to Ozempic who, you know, are looking to shed 10 to 20 pounds and that's not the right fit. And what's interesting about pharmaceuticals in general and supplements you know there's there's a camp of people who under no circumstances will ever take a pharmaceutical and they think it's the devil and and there are some people who 
we'll take any pharmaceutical and like we'll refuse to exercise or like eat a vegetable. And therein lies that there's the balance in between, you know, vegetables can save lives and sometimes pharmaceuticals can save lives. And there's evil, and there's, I'd say evil, but there, there are, there are bad intentions in every corner of our world. If you, if you choose to find them. Yeah. And algorithms reward having a very strong point of view on these cult like topics that we were talking about. Yeah. So the nuance of the conversation gets lost in all the ways we consume media. Yeah. I think when you start getting the conversation with children, I think that's a little bit more of a harder line where we're letting our children down. You mean if we put them on a Zempic? Yeah. Like I think th- there's a discussion around like bariatric surgery and, and pharmaceuticals for kids like 10, 12 years old. Yeah. And I think at that level, like we, you know, parents, institutions, the system in general have to take a hard look and say, what are we doing? Because at this age, yeah. this is, we're setting people up for a life of pharmaceuticals. And look, th- there are times yeah. for that, like in certain instances, but generally in this instance. Well, I think no. it even goes back to your original story of like, you could have had this surgery. And there are complications from surgery. Surgery is not just like a wham, bam, fix and done. You're cutting tissues, you're cutting fascia, you know, you're cutting nerves and, and there are complications and are there opportunities to, and, and the same is true for pharmaceuticals. It's not just like a wham, bam, you're, it's all done. It, it has a, a full cascading effect that we can't always know in advance. And in Colleen, your story is is exactly that with the birth control. And it's like, look, our, our view is start with lifestyle. Yeah. We believe that lifestyle can go very far. So exhaust all lifestyle options before you have to turn to pharmaceuticals or surgery. And sometimes you, it is what it is and you yeah. can't. Yeah. But but like start with lifestyle. Yeah. Agreed. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools of transformation that are created by Omala. Even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever. They have an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. There's this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into profound insight, and then you get to plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. What? I mean, if that's not deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com, and use the code Dr. Scott 10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. So you name something in your book, and I have thought this for a really long time. And when I read it, 
or when someone told me it was in your book, because I only read the cover, I was right. super excited. And I'm, I'm hoping we can talk about it. And that is bananas are controversial. Tell me about it. Yeah, they are. So how, I'm like, we could go deep on yeah. this one. So there are a couple of schools of thought on this. So one is bananas contain sugar. I love that you're eating a banana right now on camera. <laughs> and so if you are in like, so like in the wearable discussion, there are continuous glucose monitors, which again, like information is empowerment. If you think about diabetes and you know that, that crisis. And so being able to get an understanding of what foods can spike blood sugar is knowledge and developing a baseline understanding of what my blood sugar is throughout the day is like empowerment. For many people, eating bananas will spike their, their glucose. And so the memo there, if your line of thinking is, I don't want to eat anything that spikes my, my glucose, then bananas are off the table. And bananas are kind of good. I would say there, there are other fruits that are, that are lower, will trigger a lower glucose response like blackberries. And so that's an example where there, there are some people who just say like, no bananas, period. Bananas are off the table. And we don't necessarily believe in that. There are also some people who believe that bananas wreak havoc on like the, you know, uh, if you're sensitive to lectins and autoimmune and who will rule out bananas. Our view on bananas and, and these, you know, because this and, and, and foods in general that could be perceived as being controversial because, you know, beans is another one. Yeah. Is this where it comes back to like the CEO fruit? of the, Beans? Be, like like beans. 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For some people, that's off the table. I think we've seen both sides of that one. There, there's a certain group of people eat beans all day. They're fine. There's some people of like, for auto people who struggle with autoimmune, for example, like they don't do well on beans. It brings up a, a lot of like gastrointestinal issues for them and totally get it. So this is what we're, we're going to like come back to. You need to be the CEO of your own health and you need to get an understanding of what feels good and how you feel after food. Because the reality is nutrition, and we could talk about nutrition for like days and days and it just never end. We're all individuals. And there's, there's really no one size fits all approach. So like get a baseline understanding of your lab work and you know what you're concerned in terms of family history and risk and get those tests done and see how certain foods impact that blood work and see how you feel and go from there. And I think where we land on this is food in general is I think we can all agree that ultra processed foods are something we should generally avoid. You know, case in point, there was a study out of France that showed that an increased 10% increase in the consumption of highly processed foods led to a 14% increase of mortality. And that's bad news to the US because two thirds of all children eat highly processed foods. And so I think we do need to, to get off processed foods, but finding what works for you, we have some guidelines in the book. People have to do a little work. We're not just going to tell you, don't eat bananas and eat spinach all day and you'll be fine. Don't eat spinach all day because it's high in oxalates. For someone who's had a kidney stone, I, that's a watch out, I would say. You're making me but, anxious. Should um, I eat the spinach? Should I not eat the spinach? Should I eat the banana? Well, I would say... I already ate depends the banana. How much, again, this is, it, 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 there's nuance yeah. here. How many bananas are you eating, Scott? Are you eating six pounds of spinach a day? And I think this is it's where nuance and moderation... And Back judgment. off. I know, right? That's true My well. spinach, well, my body. Our neighbors. There you go. That'd be a great t-shirt. I've already made it. We have a whole merch line for the Gently Used Human podcast. (laughs) 
but I love it. it. You know, like you're bringing something up, which is like, I have a friend who wrote a book called the, I don't remember what it was called, but it was like the miracle of kale, the superfood of kale. And then I've been on lots of podcasts where they were like shit talking kale. And then I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I love a little, you know, leafy green, not the, not the, you know, moldy, you know, crunchy, gross kale, but like, you know, a deep fried kale. And, it, but it, we're talking about like extreme polarized views again, I imagine. Yeah. We have the same friends. We do have the I same friends. About. And he's, like a, he's a very balanced guy. Yeah. Very balanced. Yeah. But to your point, you know, if, if you want to sell a book on nutrition, you have to have a really strong point of view and you have to have a common enemy. Got to eliminate something. Yeah. And, you know, th- there was an entire superfood industry that, Grew over the past 10 years. And a, a lot of you know what we talk about in the book is really just Michael Pollan probably got it pretty right. Eat food, mostly plants, not too much. We've evolved that in, in 2023 with this entire protein conversation, which has probably been the biggest place where we personally have changed our lives and our own routines as it revolves around how we eat over the past decade. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Next pillar, folks? Sure. Let's okay. do it. This next one is I will move my body. So I'm I'm wondering if you can give me pointers on my shimmy 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 Beyonce drop. What do you think? Does it bring you joy? Does it bring you it joy? Looks good. It, looks, it good. looks good. I mean that that's my looks hot. It looks hot. That's that's my first interest is it does it look hot? Then yay or nay, <laughs> does it bring me the joy of well being? Is that the only thing you're doing for your exercise? Lately. <laughs> well. This goes back to the nuance. We always say, start where you are. Start where you are. Shimmy, so shimmy, 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 Beyonce drop. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. And the best exercise is the one that, you know, you'll actually end up doing. That, that I actually so really appreciate that. Criteria. In terms of one of the, the best exercises and the most underrated, quite simply, is walking. Mm-hmm. Walking is one of the best things you could possibly do. Most underrated. Mm-hmm. Most underrated. We are avid walkers. The other thing, you know, there are a lot of people who emphasize cardio, specifically what they call zone two training, which what, what does zone two training mean? Essentially, that's getting your heart rate up to a place where it's you can have a conversation, but it's slightly difficult to hold. So how do you get there? You take the stairs. Oh. You don't have time to exercise or run, take the stairs. It takes me less than 30 seconds to do five flights of stairs. I'm pretty good shape. If you're assuming you're mobile, of course. Yeah. If you're not in good shape, a minute, like you have a minute. If you're going to a meeting, how long does it take to get in the elevator? People are pressing the buttons, take the stairs and just build that into your day and try to walk as much as you can. Walking is going to get you very far. There are so many studies around the benefits of walking. There are ways you can you can do interval walking and pick up the pace, slow down the pace call a friend like there's a ways to get your heart rate up and walking is just so underrated i think we're too sedentary i don't know if you guys know this about me but when i was 18 i won richard simmons dance contest that is huge huge. and it still is like the highlight of my life let's update his bio oh my gosh would you please actually my publicist (laughs) took it out i don't know why But I, but yeah, I mean, for those, like, I, sometimes I work out eight days a week. Is that too much? I think, again, it goes back to kind of where your goals are. And, and there's this statistic that I think we had both heard so many times that we were 
kind of immune to its impact, even though it was like the single statistic that transformed the way we work out. We put it on Mind Body Green, again, having heard this so many times. And when you think about kind of comments, people's minds were blown. Many of them mad at us for sharing it. I know so much buildup. If you're over 65, there's a 25% chance that you'll fall. And if you do fall, studies show that your chances of falling again double. And if you fall and break your hip, then there is a 30 to 40% chance that you will die within a year. And it's not from the fall, it's from all the stuff that happens. Now, this single statistic moved me from a yoga, light Pilates, obviously there's a range of things that Pilates can entail these days, to working out with kettlebells for the first time. But it's mind-blowing when you hear it for the first time. Yeah. For me, I always do like a little bit of resistance training, but I stopped doing, I hate, I never liked doing like, so like the last time I did anything on my lower body was probably before the last game I played in college 25 years ago. And I got in the scale and I noticed I'd lost about seven or eight pounds. I was like, well, I don't get it. Like everything fits the same. And then I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh my God. I'm developing old white man's flat ass. Oh, my ass man. is disappearing. And we live in Miami, I a Scott. doctor for that, sweetie. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I did, didn't want didn't to go that direction. And, and look, it wasn't about the vanity. It was just like a wake-up call. Like, shit, my legs are getting weaker. Like, I need to start doing leg work again, whether it's like body weight mm-hmm. squats or just something, doing more stair work. And that was my wake-up call because, you know, segueing to like the resistance training and that scaring statistic about falling. So like, look, what happens? Like you want to have balance. So maybe you don't lose your balance. So you fall. You have the mobility and the strength. So you're falling. Maybe you can like grab something and be strong enough so that you don't fall. Or lastly, you know, have the lean muscle mass so you have that armor to protect yourself. You know, so if you do fall and, you know, look, sarcopenia is very common, more common than you think. Up to 13% of people in their 60s are suffering from it. And if you live to your 80s, half of people living in their 80s have sarcopenia. And essentially, it's like you're losing bone density as we age, up to 1% a year after the age of 40. And if unaddressed, it can lead to osteoporosis in men and women, and muscle strength and bone density are intimately connected. And so like for us, this is like a fundamental change of like, we need to focus on resistance training for like the concept of longevity. And it's not just falling, you know, to Colleen's point about intention, you know, we've got little kids, like we want to be around when they have grandkids or they have kids, we have grandkids. We want to be strong enough where you can pick up like a 30 pounder, you know, and hold the kid. You need leg strength, you need mobility. So like, that's our why behind resistance training is that's our intention to be around, but to be able to like hug and run around with our kids and grandkids. What do you, do you imagine like if we just started like instigating like for 70 year old or six, you said 65 year olds plus 65 plus 65 plus like keto classes, parkour classes, like really the things that like teach you how to fall. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been such a wonderful shift in how people think of strength yeah. training. You know, one of the most popular classes on class last mm-hmm. year for women was wow. weightlifting. And I look at our daughter's school, you go by the gym in high school, you see women mm-hmm. working out. One of our favorite things to do at night is when there's no one in our building's gym is to bring our girls with us to mm-hmm. the gym. 
so that they can see us working out. And, you know, they do their, you know, three-year-old and six-year-old equivalents of what working out means, but like just starting those habits young and having this just be how we live. We love that culturally there's been a shift where it's okay to be a woman and be strong and lift weights. And, you know, I had, and we're big fans of sports. We both played sports competitively in college and like have, you know, for me, you know, I learned, always learned more through playing basketball than I did academically. I think the life lessons were paramount. We're just such huge believers and it's a big why behind why we moved. And you think about women, you know, women tear more ACLs than oh. men. And it's because, yeah, it's not even Do they have extra ACLs? The, Is that why? No, they've got more ACLs. And it's because the belief is because leg strength. Yeah. Men or boys, girl, you know, are doing more and women weren't in the gym and now they're getting in the yeah. gym. So like, we're so glad that the conversation has shifted here to women and that culturally it's becoming more accepted. That's, that's amazing. Next pillar, yays or nays. Okay. Ready. So the next pillar in your book is I will teach my body resilience to stress. So Sometimes I like to sit in a cold plunge pool and just until all my good parts shrivel and my nipples invert. And then I invite Wim Hof to literally slap the shit out of me while I sing, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yay or nay? We'll still invoke, does this bring you joy? And if the answer is yes, I you know, may have some more work to do. There's a second book for you. But, you know, prob- probably not. Okay. Probably okay. not. Is it, is it the inverted nipple part? Is it, is it the, the Wim Hof part? I, just so I can really narrow down my next day. The singing is definitely the best part. <laughs> singing, singing brings joy to me. Yeah, probably not to those who are listening, but, you know, yeah. that's another story. I, I think it's... <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, we, we can take anything a little bit too far. Can we? And I know, shocking, shocking. And we felt, you know, in this chapter, there's a big discussion of cold plunge and there's lots of excitement about it right now. Our social team will tell you if, if we post about cold plunges, it will get a lot of engagement, whether it's on Instagram or TikTok. So we felt, you know, we couldn't ignore it, but we also wanted to acknowledge, like, here's a place where there's great science And this is not something that we incorporate into any 1.0 or 2.0 version of our day. I'm not even, forget a cold plunge, I'm not even taking a cold shower. And, uh, you know, knowing that we run a company and are entrepreneurs, like that carries a pretty high stress level. And you add on, you know, two kids who are three and six and, and just like the ups and downs of life. I'm not looking to add in more external stressors to my life because of where I'm at now. Now that there's someone else who who could be on a different part of this journey and maybe like, okay, I need to start challenging myself. That is not my place right now. I appreciate that. We have built up that stress you response. You have built up that <laughs> resilience and we're rocking it. All right. Next pillar. I will be a regenerative force in the world. So I'm happy to announce I started buying reusable batteries. Yay or nay? Yay. Yay. Okay. What do you mean by regenerative force in the world? (laughs) You know, I I think it's reframing the conversation around climate change or sustainability or whatever you want to call it. This idea of like regeneration and being more mindful of of our resources and what we do Mm -hmm. with them. And it's like weighing to, to waste. 
yeah. you know, this idea that we're, we need to become a little bit more circular without taking it too far and becoming an episode of Portlandia. And, you know, in this conversation, look, it's an emotional conversation for a variety of reasons. And, you know, there's a great environmentalist, Paul Hawken, who wrote a book, Drawdown, which we think is kind of like the best thing we've seen in terms of really like getting in the weeds and looking at the data, like, cause you want impact here with this conversation. There are so many endless things that we can all do, but you want to have impact. And so start with like your high leverage opportunities mm-hmm. and focus on them. Cause it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole here. And, you know, a big one that you're like, everyone eats food waste is, is huge. A third of food grown is wasted each year, 1.3 billion tons. And clothing is another one. 80% of the material used to make clothing end up being incarcerated or sent to a landfill. So like these are like two easy takeaways that like aren't going to really impact people's lifestyle and that try not to waste food. So like order less or eat more. <laughs> Be more mindful of, of how you're eating and waste. And then with like clothing, you know, what's interesting when we were researching the book is fast fashion isn't really driven by lower income communities. Fast fashion is driven by people who have unlimited resources and chooses to buy a lot of stuff. So like with clothing, like, sure, be mindful about like where it's made, but like find clothes that like bring you joy and you like and are going to last you. More than a season. Exactly. And so it's like a practical approach to a conversation which Many people will just say, oh, it's, you know, it's never enough, or I'll just buy a Tesla and I'm good. And the reality is it's a little bit more complex. We want to give people a little bit of focus here and feel like they actually can be part of the yeah. change. You know, I think it's, it's such a harder measure or driving force to change in that way. I mean, if we're not feeling well, hmm, we might be more likely to go you know, do some movement, or we might be more willing to change our diet, or we might be more willing to look at our stress patterns. But we might not like intuit that, oh, maybe my relationship with the world around me, the community around me, the, the natural world might actually be also contributing to some of the pain I'm experiencing. Or if I'm not experiencing internal pain, I might not even look outside of me to address that. Yes. Yes. Shall we move to the second to last pillar? You're getting to our two favorite pillars. This is my favorite And that's one. all the time we have today. Thank you guys so much for joining us. <laughs> 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 all right. So the second to last one, which are your two favorites. It's also one of mine, so I'm glad we share that. I will cultivate meaningful connection. You know, certainly, oh gosh, certainly as a therapist and, and doing research and belonging, this is a big one. So yay or nay. So the other day I met the cutest dog on my way to Whole Foods. And so I took it home with me and now we cuddle all the time. Yay or nay. As long as you didn't kidnap the dog. As long as you didn't kidnap the dog. And pets do have a positive (laughs) impact. So I would say yay. It would be better if that were All I heard was yay. So I'm going with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all good. Mm-hmm. All good. <laughs> it's true. I, I was recently doing an article with someone and we were looking, we were doing the research on the impact of animals and dogs, specifically dogs, and, and the significant effect on our well being. Now, that's not anti cats. It's just that the research was more lenient towards dogs creating more oxytocin, more of that bonding effect. Dogs are warmer than 
I'm like, dogs are going to come over and, you know, lick you yeah. and, and hug you. Cats just kind of do their own thing. <laughs> I'm also allergic to cats. So, 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 okay. so, so we, he we should that up. <laughs> so tell us more about like this as your favorite pillar and the, your favorite factoids of cultivating meaningful connection. Yeah. So for this one, if you think about where we sit in the world today, we're, we're in the midst of a loneliness epidemic. There's a mental health crisis and, you know, there, there are numerous studies which, which cite all of the, what can go wrong when people are lonely and disconnected. And, you know, one of them came out of BYU where essentially equated loneliness with smoking 15 cigarettes a day, you know, and if, if you zoom and if you're socially isolated, you were 45% more likely to get sick with the common cold. And so you think about like, oh, wow, what did we do the last couple of years? And, you know, in, in the context of the health and wellness conversation, it's very easy to go, okay, nutrition and exercise. And look, they're important. We should go there. But there was a study by that, you know, Marta Zaraska cited, which we thought was fascinating, where essentially exercise lowered mortality risk by 20 to 40% and having good diet lowered mortality risk by 30%. But being in a good romantic relationship, having friends and being connected to your community can lower your mortality by 45%. So essentially, like connection trumps everything. And like the study, which I absolutely love, which no one talks about, is the Rosetto study. And the Rosetto was a small town in Pennsylvania in the 1950s. And this is when heart disease arrives in America. And the rate of heart attacks for people over 65 was half that of the nation Rosetto. And for men under 55, no cases, heart, heart disease non-existent. So they took a look like what's going on in Rosetto? What they're doing is magic. Well, they were smoking, they were drinking, they were eating lots of pasta and meatballs, probably bananas too. Yikes. And you know, they were like, this, this makes no sense. And when they took a closer look, they discovered that these people had such strong social connections, multi-generational living was, was common. There were lots of parties and parades. People were enjoying wine and food with family and friends. And then that was the secret. And guess what? In the 1960s, community starts to break apart as people move away. Heart disease arrives and catches up with the national average. And so if you think about Rosetta, like to me, it's just the, the, there's so much magic Although there's hard science behind the power of social connection and given the state of the world right now, I just think this is such an important focus. And that's why it's, you know, one of the pillars at the end of the book. And it's a place where I wish there was more of an outside amount of the conversation. You know, you can take Rosetto and then transfer it, you know, into the data of exercising more or less lowers your mortality risk by 20%. Nutrition for all we talk about it is 30%. But remarkably, being in a good relationship, having friends, being connected to your community lowers it by 45%. Yeah. We have a t-shirt on our merch page that just says, bring back Rosetta. <laughs> yeah. <You> no. <laughs> Not yet, but we will after this episode. Yeah. But for a second, you know, when I'm telling the story, you're nodding no, as if like, I, I, I know thought like, you were familiar with I too am a social scientist. But it's such, it's a, great such a great study. study. Like to me, you know, Which is, I was really excited that you brought it up. Really excited. Thumbs up for yeah. me. All right. Shall we move to your, the last and final pillar, which is, I, I think, a really paramount one and, and, and actually tricky. And as you write about how tricky it is, but so the, the final one is, I will seek my purpose. For me, I've been more practicing stalking my purpose. So, yay or nay? 
I think probably. Nay. But I appreciate <laughs> yeah. the effort. I appreciate you I appreciating think, the effort. That brings us back to the last one I, about cultivating yeah. meaningful connection. Yeah. So tell us about purpose, because I think it's like this, like, ooh. I mean, when I when I read it, yep. like on a like, find your purpose, I kind of get this nauseous yep. feeling all over my body. <laughs> yeah, I I fully relate to that. It's one of those super cringeworthy, cringeworthy words. And we do want to reframe how we think about purpose because I think you know when I was struggling in my twenties with finding what my quote unquote purpose was, I was thinking, oh, it's my job. Finding a job that I can connect to my values is what I'm looking for. And you know, as you go through the decades of life, purpose is going to change so much you know, from 20s to 30s, 40s, and in, in future generations. So being flexible with what that definition looks like. But there is great science that people between the ages of 65 and 92 who had clear goals live longer and had a better quality of life than those who didn't. We mentioned earlier the, the great Arthur Brooks line about finding your, your personal mission statement. And it's about understanding like what moves you as a person, what gets you out of bed in the morning. Is it about achieving or is it about finding and helping others? what parts of your life are devoted to caring for others. And it, and it keeps on going back to, you know, the original conversation that we had about wellness versus well-being. And how do we take this idea of purpose and, you know, make it about something that's not achieving at work, <laughs> being on the hedonic treadmill, but, but really making an impact that, you know, helps your family, helps and, the world. And it doesn't require, you know, you need to quit your job tomorrow and, or, and go to Bali, nothing against that. See you uh, there, buddy. But, <laughs> you know, I, I know. And I think, you know, a good question that anyone can start with and one that resonates with us is, you know, are you looking forward or are you looking backward mm. to get like a sense of where you stand right now? And like to look forward or backward, like there's a lot of little things that you can do to, to bring a little bit more purpose and joy to your life. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, you know, big inspiration points in this chapter was a fellow Miamier, Lisa Miller, PhD, you know, going back to our purpose and, you know, what's our now now, you know, we think a lot about the mental health crisis as the parents of two girls. And she has helped show us that when mother and child were high in spirituality, the child was 80% protected against oppression compared with mothers and children that weren't as high in spirituality. And, you know, there's such a broad definition of what that looks like, you know, and it really goes into this something bigger of a transcendent awareness. Sure. It could be organized religion. If that's something you respond to, it could be nature. It could be caring for others. It could be going out in the woods, picking know, up trash, picking up trash. But as parents trying to navigate, I think this really tricky, scary time to be parents where the data on children is scary. The data on girls is particularly scary. Like this is really top of mind. And I never, the typical wellness kind of spirituality never connected with me. I wasn't like a crystals person. They look nice in my room, but it wasn't giving me this bigger, something bigger. And, you know, Lisa's helped really frame how I think about this something bigger and this purpose in life in a way that's really applicable. Yeah. And the interesting research in like existential psychology and where it brings in more the spiritual lens, more like the holistic aspect of psychology as well, demonstrates that spirituality is a sense of belonging to more than ourselves. 
more than just the interpersonal. I belong to this planet. I belong to a bigger purpose, something meaningful. And that gives me something to live for, to a sense of why I exist. And there's an existential stress that's reduced by it as well, let alone the hormonal responses of simply feeling belonging. Yes. So... We made it through the eight pillars, the yays or nays. I think, I think I'm on the right path to the joy of well-being. Thank you for the advisement on that. One last question before we go. So I, I saw that one of your taglines for the book says, longevity for the 99%. And I'm curious, because as a one percenter, are you guys being exclusion, like exclusionary? <laughs> We're very exclusionary. Oh, we're gonna get canceled. I love that what you're talking about is accessible longevity, and that and that's such an important shift in in the culture of biohacking and well being and all of these things that are like they're really like for a certain economic class, which is not which is not fair, and it, it creates more of a class system based on simply who gets to live the longest. Yeah. And it's also, you know, there's an interesting concept of, you know, there's, there's being financially wealthy, you know, a financial billionaire. And then there's the concept of being a time Mm. billionaire. We have infinite time. I think, you know, infinite time, there's just not enough time to do all of the quote unquote things, you know, all of the frosting. And there's an increasing feeling if you're not doing all those things, you're not good enough, or or you look at all of the things and you say, "There's no way I can possibly do this, and I'm never going to, you know, get healthy." And we just fundamentally disagree with that. And that was, you know, another one of our whys behind the book. Like that, we don't want to knock the longevity conversation because there's so much great stuff. But like, what we did is took everything we knew, all of the experts, all the science, all the data, and packaged it in a way that, oh, I can do this. I love that. And it not only brings joy, but hope towards well-being. And that's yes. something I walked away from when I did read your book. I didn't want to admit it, but I did read it yesterday. And it's entirely. <laughs> My friends who are listening, The Joy of Well-Being, A Practical Guide to a Happy, Healthy, and Long Life. Pick it up. It's a beautiful, accessible read that will change your life. Thank you so much, Jason and Colleen, for being on the Gently Used Human podcast. I adore you both, and I'll see you at brunch. Amazing. See Thank you, on, you the on the beach. Thank you so much, Scott. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And you know what? Show us some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today. <laughs>